Welcome to the Alkaline Unplugged podcast. I'm Erin Parazuski, a functional fitness expert and holistic health coach. I am the founder and CEO of Alkaline, a holistic health and wellness company that operates boutique fitness studio franchises across the US. I live in Menlo Park, California with my husband and two young daughters. I'm joined by my podcast partner, Kathy Purnell, a master instructor at Alkaline and a former special education teacher. She has three grown daughters and lives in Los Altos with her husband, Jeff. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and our first few episodes are dedicated to exploring and raising awareness around a topic that is often overlooked or misunderstood. We will share real-life stories of amazing humans who have struggled, survived, and continue to thrive. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to your comments and feedback. As a disclaimer, neither Kathy nor I are licensed medical professionals. The materials and content in this podcast are intended to be general information and are not to be considered a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to Alkaline Unplugged podcast episode number three. I'm Kathy Purnell and I'm here with my podcast partner and Alkaline founder and CEO, Aaron Parasuski. Together we bring you Alkaline Unplugged a collection of conversations on a whole host of topics, from experts in the health and wellness field to the real, raw, and human stories of people like you and me. We look forward to bringing you content that will nourish your mind, body, and soul. We are joined today by Lisa Abramson. Lisa is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, executive coach, and mindfulness teacher. She has given keynotes and led workshops at organizations like Cisco, Salesforce, and the Stanford Graduate School of Business on Mindfulness, preventing burnout and developing a resilient mindset. Her popular mindfulness meditations have been streamed around the globe over 950,000 times, and she's been featured in Forbes, Forbes, Fast Company, NPR, Health Magazine, Thrive Global, The Guardian, and numerous other publications and podcasts. She lives in Menlo Park with her husband and two daughters. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. You gave an inspiring TEDx talk about your experience with postpartum depression. Postpartum, postpartum depression is far more common than I think people understand. One in seven women who give birth each year will experience postpartum depression. Please tell us your story. Yeah, so um, thank you again for having me, and um, I'm happy to share more about my story. So I, um, you know, was an overachiever, probably a perfectionist my whole life, used to striving, getting things done. You know, professionally, I started climbing the corporate ladder, found myself, you know, before I was 30 as um, a marketing executive sitting in on board meetings getting, um, you know, awards like the one of the 25 women to watch in the industry. So things on paper look good. But inside, I knew that I was leaving my best of talents at home. And the reason I share this is um, that achievement, striving and perfectionism drove and dovetailed into my experience when I had my daughter, um, my first daughter, Lucy, and about a month after she was born, I experienced something called postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. And I ended up um, being hospitalized from that experience. Um, so I had kind of been a marketing executive professionally. Then I left that career and started being a mindfulness teacher and an executive coach, and everything was going great there. And I was 
given um, a big shock to my system, frankly. I had never experienced a mental health issue until after the birth of my daughter. So, um, you know, in fact, I think I was known for being happy and upbeat and always rolling with the punches and, um, you know, having my stuff together. And then, you know, the combination of the stress of being a new mom, really trying to do everything perfectly, it was devastating to not be able to breastfeed and see my daughter losing weight, uh, feeling like I wasn't doing a good enough job, I wasn't there for her. The expectations I had on myself were um, crippling, and that with a combination of those stress hormones, not getting much sleep, um, I ended up not sleeping for three days, and that was when things really shifted and, and took a turn for me. Um, and it was, yeah, it was devastating. I ended up, um, yeah, hospitalized in a psychiatric ward, someplace I never thought I'd find myself. And, uh, but I, I made a recovery and part of the healing of that recovery process was to talk about my story and to say, look, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a history of mental illness, um, postpartum, affects more women than we, we know about. And it's something that's treatable and you can get better. I feel stronger than ever. And I, in some ways I'm thankful for that experience because it caused me to reevaluate a lot about what I, the way I was living my life and what I wanted to do and what was important to me. How much do you think your background on mindfulness allowed you to reach out and get help? So um, I really wasn't in a state where I was able to advocate for myself. But with the psychosis, I had lost touch with reality. I thought there were snipers on my roof. I thought my phone was talking to me, giving me weird messages. I, you know, there was a moment where I was in the bathroom and I thought God was speaking to me. And <laughs> there was a lot of strange experiences all combined in um, that delusion. So thankfully, my husband and my family were there to advocate for me. I will say... I feel so blessed to have been studying about self-compassion and mindfulness because that certainly helped in my recovery. I mean, I was in this inpatient unit for 10 days, a month after my daughter was born, and four months after that, I was back again speaking at companies. I didn't feel great. I was still very much in the recovery process, but I feel like I was able to have that bounce back because I knew, okay, you know, the mind was playing tricks on me. I know how to get support now. I needed self-compassion more than ever. You know, when I walked out of the inpatient psychiatric unit, I remember thinking, like, I'm taking this secret to the grave. There's no way anyone is ever going to know that I was here. Like, I'm just going to whoop, like, that experience delete. out the door. Delete, you know, <laughs> yeah. and move on. And back to, like, let me just do a photo shoot and take beautiful pictures of me and my daughter, and I'm just going to forget that ever happened. But I realized... Um, that, you know, Brene Brown is someone I, I follow and she has a new Netflix special that's amazing that I highly recommend. But she says, you know, if um, if you don't own your story, you know, if you own your story, you get to write the ending. You get to write a brave new ending. But if you don't own it, then it really keeps you trapped. And that was a big part of me deciding to be more vulnerable and to share about my experience because it is a story of resilience. It's not a story of disaster or heartbreak or misfortune. It really is about things bad happen and then what do you do with them? 
And it's so impressive to me and inspiring really that you've chosen to share your story. Like I mentioned at the opening, one in seven women who give birth this year will experience some form of postpartum depression. And I think there can be like any mental health situation, there can be a lot of stigma. There can be a lot of um, lack of compassion for ourselves around that. So I, I really applaud you for bringing this to the forefront, really owning your story, like you said, so that you can rewrite the next chapters. I don't like to think about writing the ending because you're awfully young to be thinking about <laughs> writing your ending, but continue, you know, yeah, continue letting, writing your story. Yeah, and letting it evolve, absolutely. And I think through the experience, um, you know, not only did I realize how resilient um, I am and we can be, but there's things that are teachable about, you know, resilience and creating that mindset. I call it a resilient mindset, and it's really a combination of a growth mindset, which means we're not fixed in our abilities and the capability to learn and grow is within us, um, but, and it can be trained and that combined with self-compassion, I really do believe it makes you unstoppable because you see what challenges are ahead of you, but then you know that you can learn and grow through experience. You're not afraid to fail because you have your own back. You learn how to talk nicely to yourself and um, it's a process. You know, some days are better than others but I know that I can, I have that toolbox to rely on. Would you say that it's a universal phenomenon of that inner critic yeah. chirping in our ear? Ab- absolutely. I mean, it's um, kind of evolved from, I call it the evolutionary hangover we have as being humans. It was evolved to keep us safe. You know, we see a twig in the road and we're like, oh, it's a snake, but it's not a snake. It was just a twig in the road because we have that um, sort of fear and negativity response, that negativity bias to basically keep us safe and keep us um, also from not getting, you know, banished from our tribe. Like we care about what other people think and that's important because if we didn't and then we'd be off away from our tribe to fend for ourselves, that would be death. So there's a reason we, sometimes fear that disconnection, like it feels like, you know, very emotionally intense. It feels like death. Like those things are biologically hardwired into us. So I think knowing that um, can help us realize, yeah, the inner critic's there, but we don't need to, it's impossible to exile it completely, but how can we start to leverage our inner critic towards our benefit? So one thing I like to teach is don't fight with your inner critic actually acknowledging your inner critic is really effective to say, I heard you and I've got this. When your inner critic, it's trying to get your attention, it's trying to keep you safe, there's a positive intent there, but the methods are highly unproductive. So having that dialogue with your inner critic of like, oh, there goes the inner critic. For me today, my inner critic was like, why have you been, you know, I just got back from a vacation, I want to get a lot done, and I've been like more distracted than ever. I'm like, oh, I'm just like, what's wrong with me? I'm so distracted. I can't focus. I can't get done what I need to. Um, And I think my type A overachiever especially likes productivity and (laughs) performance. So um, when I feel like I'm not aligned there, my inner critic's very loud. And it's like, okay, I need to practice self-compassion, actually take a break, soothe my inner critic, and then restart. And then I was able to complete the article I wanted that I'd been working the last two days on and couldn't make progress on. 
So sometimes like we need to stop and reset in order to really get to where we want, but it's, it is a brave act to stop and go, okay, I'm going to stop running around in circles and running interference and then check in, take a self-compassion break and then move forward. Yeah. At Alkaline, we spend, you know, during class times, people are facing the mirror. And mm -hmm. I think I can almost at this point, in my teaching career, watch people's facial expressions and notice when that little inner yeah. critic is sneaking in. And I heard it once said that you can't really turn that inner critic off. Like you said, yeah. it's an evolutionary protective mechanism, mm -hmm. if you will, but learning how to turn it down yeah. is important. Yeah. Turn down the volume. Turn down the volume. Yeah. I think resetting expectations for yourself, like this just happened to me where I'm trying to write this book and I feel like I need to be at a certain point and I can't get there and I'm having a hard time carving it out. And I just decided, you know what, this book, I'm not on a publishing deadline. It's a self-imposed deadline. It's a self-imposed expectation. I'm like, you know what, we're just going to take a few weeks off. And then that day I wanted to write the book. Like all of a sudden it's like a mental, you know, it's a game. You almost have to you took the pressure off yeah. of yourself. I just said, what's the worst that's going to happen if I take a couple weeks off and I don't, you know, yeah, but I'm a perfectionist too. You consider yourself a perfectionist? Uh, yes. However, over time, so when I was growing up, my mom was very much a perfectionist about mm -hmm. how the house looked mm -hmm. and organization. And when I was a new mom and had three small kids and I was running in circles, you know, somebody would leave a toy out and I'd be quickly going behind them, picking it up. And I thought the only person I am making crazy right now is myself. Mm. Who cares how my house looks? You know, nobody's going to judge me. If my very best friend were to ring the doorbell right now and come on in, she's not going to judge me because there are some toys out, like let it go. So mm -hmm. I feel like the older I get, I have very high standards for myself and yes, my inner critic can chirp loudly, but I think with age and just with more awareness, I've learned to recognize that voice. Um, I kind of laugh at her yeah. a little bit. I'm like, Oh, come on. Like yeah. I would, that inner critic would never say out loud to my daughters or to my friend what that voice is saying. So Zip it. That's resiliency. That knowing that True. you can get through that cycle and that you're going to be okay yeah. on the other side is what, I mean, to me, the definition, like the, the more times you experience something, the, the more you know, flex the muscles yeah, in order to better deal with the situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an evolution. I was even um, listening to Melinda Gates talk um, yesterday uh, and she was saying that it, um, it, perfectionism. She's like, I'm even hard on myself about being hard on myself. Yeah. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. Now you're speaking my language that we're like, I'm like, I'm just too hard on myself. Oh, oh, oh. And you're like, oh man, the perfectionism, like you beat it down in one corner and then it pops up in yeah. another. It's like whack-a-mole. Oh. Like, no, 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 no. Oh, I handled it there. Like now I'm letting go of my house. And then you're like, now I'm too tight, you know, type A about yeah. that. So anyway, That's true. we all got it. <laughs> and it's okay. Uh, tell the process. Us, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, tell us about your work around mindfulness. I think mindfulness is a huge component of yeah. what we're talking about in terms of perfectionist, perfectionism. Yeah. Absolutely. I think mindfulness um, is always the first step. You need that awareness to just understand what's happening and not to be 
um, at the whims of the different emotional reactivity we all have. So mindfulness, I think, is, is key in terms of just knowing and seeing. Like being able, it's a huge first step. So if you're like, oh, man, and I've listened to this podcast, I know my inner critic's super loud. What, what should I do about it? The first step is just notice when your inner critic is in charge. Notice what situations your inner critic comes up. What are the phrases your inner critic says? So that's mindfulness. And then you can choose to take action. Um, I like to think about mindfulness in terms of an equation, E plus R equals O. And it's your events plus your response or your reaction equals O, your outcome. And without mindfulness, we are such habitual creatures. We're going to just keep reacting and responding. And, and, um, and we need that pause of a bit of mindfulness to, in order to change those outcomes. So I think that's always step one. And then from there, you can build the resilient mindset um, and also work on you know, motivation and other kind of higher, higher levels of functioning and fine tuning that. But mindfulness is always step one. Pay attention. Our number one core yeah, value is to pay attention. pay attention. Yep. And I Absolutely. don't always think that that is something encouraged in yeah. our culture. Yeah. You know, when people tune inward, I think there's this negative connotation that you're self-absorbed, mm -hmm. right? It's the extreme of mindfulness, I guess. Yeah. Or um, we avoid it because it's uncomfortable. To true. Look yeah. Inward. Sometimes you see things you don't like. Or your inner critic doesn't like. <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. I think that that um, it is much easier to stay busy and distracted than face what is inside. And I know for me, um, you know, yeah, starting my mindfulness practice years and years ago, um, you know, I initially went after a mindfulness practice to be like, I want to reduce my stress. So it was very goal oriented. By X percent. But yeah, <laughs> By this kind time. Of, pretty much. It was like, uh, I'd like to just be less stressed. So mindfulness will solve that. And uh, it kind of opened a can of worms, <laughs> but in a good way for what else was there. And um, yeah, we can certainly play the game of being distracted and busy our whole lives. Uh, but I think then we miss that connection with ourselves. And that I think is truly beautiful and it's worth the discomfort, but uh, it's not easy. You know, I think we all know that when you're living it and you're putting yourself out there and you'll receive some criticism or you feel like you're actually showing your true self to the world that's that's courage right there you are the mother of two daughters Erin has two daughters I have three what would you what would you say you do or you plan to do as you raise them to help them avoid the pitfalls of perfectionism or of overheating that inner critic yeah, I mean, I I think living as a role model is most important. You know, modeling, not just saying, but showing. So, you know, when I make mistakes, I try to own up to them in front of that. You know, I um, Lucy still, my oldest, still laughs at me. She's like, "Remember that time where you put on the blender and you didn't put the top on, and then there was there was the all smoothie all over the place." And she thinks it's funny. I was like, "Yeah, you know." Yeah, mommy had an oops moment. She made a mistake and it made a huge mess. Um, at least in that situation, I was proud because once the mess was made, she goes, should we go get daddy to clean it up? And I was like, yes, I've done something <laughs> right. It. Because she knows moms are very good at cleaning. <laughs> That's funny. But, you know, it's the little things like that of just showing them. Um, you know, and I also 
try to you know, be an example, show her like mommy was nervous to do this. She, you know, had a big keynote. There was 300 people and I was nervous before, but I did it. And then I felt so proud of myself after giving her that language of this isn't, um, did not just see the highlight reel to see yes. what it looks like to be in the trenches and um, even to be disappointed. Um, I think showing this swath of emotions, even most recently I was thinking about, uh, you know, anger is not really like a womanly emotion, but it's an emotion we all have and need to express. Um, Cause if we um, repress it, it, it leads to, you know, dis-ease. Um, and what does that look like to show like, mommy can be angry, but then also like recover from that and say, I was mad. Um, and then I go to, you know, good old Daniel Tiger for all the lessons like that. It helps to say you're mad and you know, count to four, <laughs> the feeling. stuff yes. like that, you know? Okay. So, but it's a work in progress. It's funny you say that because I never saw my mother cry, ever. Yeah. And I never saw my parents fight. Yeah. Interesting. My kids are, you know, if we have a, even a discussion, like not even a fight, but just a heated discussion, they're like, why are you fighting? I said, well, you guys fight with each other. Siblings, yeah. you fight. You, you don't always get along or see eye to eye with everybody in your life, but you, you resolve it and you yeah. move on. It doesn't mean you don't love each other, but everything in my house was just under the rug. Yeah, a lot of that was ge generational, I yeah. would say. Yeah, so I feel like any interpersonal relationship is fraught with challenge, right? Yeah. And um, what is that saying? That anger is unspoken hurt or disappointment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, we all have anger. Yeah. It's what you do with it. And like you said, if you just repress it and you tap it down, it's going to rear its ugly head again. Totally. <laughs> right. So yeah. better to get in front of it and work through those issues. And I think modeling, having those difficult conversations with your children is yeah. an awesome thing because they're going to have difficult conversations as they grow up. Absolutely. And as we were talking before, you know, we're a fan of John Gottman's work on relationships and he talks about um, it's, it's important to just show the whole swath of, of a relationship and that there are moments of conflict and then showing and actually modeling a resolution is so powerful to your children to have them see, um, you know, a discussion can be had, it can even be heated, but as long as they see the resolution then they know like this is normal and this is okay. And they see that mutual respect because, Absolutely. you know, you can have conflict, but if they sense that underlying lack of respect, then that gets dicey too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I was going to ask about your, how your experience was with your second yeah. pregnancy and oh, second question. birth. After the experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was very nervous to get pregnant. It took, you know, tell Lucy was two for me to even like have the discussion of, are we ready to try for another? Um, Cause I was told it was probably a 50-50 chance that it would happen again. So that was um, terrifying. And uh, yeah, I think that was, you know, stepping on stage to give the TEDx talk to talk about my experience was the, the bravest moment up until trying to have baby number two. And then I was like, that took the cake. That was the scariest experience um, to, to try to, take that step forward. Um, and then we ended up having two miscarriages before getting pregnant with baby number two. So it was, it was a difficult and challenging road. And um, as you can see, I am one to tend to look on the bright side of things. So I, 
I do feel like the miscarriages, they were devastating, but it also did show me how resilient I was and that I could also manage this hormonal flux from pregnant to not pregnant. Um, and I weathered it okay and I got support and I did what I needed to do. So that was, it kind of boosted my confidence a little bit. Um, but um, yeah, and it was a stressful pregnancy too. I mean, there's a lot of things they were worried about um, her not growing as much as she should. There was just a lot of stress in that pregnancy, but she's, uh, Vivian is very healthy and we're fortunate. And I didn't um, experience postpartum psychosis with the second, but I had, you know, everything in place should I need to take those steps forward. Um, I still experienced some mild postpartum depression after about six months, but I was able to kind of manage it more holistically because uh, it was a milder case with exercise and therapy. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a interesting, challenging experience, but I'm, happy and now I'm also happy that I think my days were good with two and <laughs> I'm happy and content with that. Me too. Yes. Kathy bravely went for number three. Yes, <laughs> I did. I did. Um, tell us how people can find access to, not to you, but to your, your work yeah. and your meditations and Absolutely. so forth. Absolutely. Um, so uh, my website is lisaabramson.com, and I have a free 30-day meditation challenge there with five minutes a day meditations that you can access. I think that's a great way to start a practice, again, paying attention and being more mindful. So that's a great place to start. Great. You can also do those with your kids. They're short. I yeah. do some of them with my kids. So speaking to how you model, Absolutely. you do it with your kids, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You meditate. It's good for everybody. Good family. Yeah, it's a great way to give them the tools. Give them the tools yeah. and unwind at night um, for everyone. Let go of the work day and start to relax. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. And I look forward to following your thank you. Thank you so much life. for having me. And check out our TED TEDx talk. It's awesome. It's excellent. I think it's really good to to just illustrate how common postpartum is like it's funny until I watched that I I was medicated yeah. for postpartum yeah. after my daughter and I kind of always said no I had just had baby blues because I didn't have that yeah. detached feeling from my mm -hmm. child but I remember uncontrollably crying and calling my doctor who was awesome and I just said I don't feel like myself and she said I'm gonna write your prescription for vitamin z the yeah. Zola. yeah <laughs> And I, I'm, now I'm looking back, I'm like, I think I did have postpartum depression, yeah. you know, just the expectations of um, failure to thrive with your kid. Isn't that the worst, by the way, the worst oh, no. label for yeah. like, you're an inadequate mother, you can't nurse your <laughs> kid. Oh, no. And, um, you know, working and trying to provide for the family and the baby. And so I think it's, yeah, it's yeah, a it's lot. Really There's a lot that's, yeah, not understood and not, um, because yeah, people, you like move on and you want to just move on with your life and not necessarily go back there. But there's, um, yeah, it's much more common than you think. And there's a range of illnesses, like the most extreme that I had of the postpartum psychosis and losing touch with reality. And then there are, you know, baby blues, there's postpartum depression, but even um, anxiety, I think is what uh, affects a lot of moms in the postpartum experience. It's also not talked about. 
because you might think, oh, I'm not crying, but I feel so nervous every time I go out of my house or I'm having trouble sleeping at night, even though my husband said he'd take the night feeding. Like Those are times where I think it's really wise to um, get counsel and yeah. reach out because you don't have to suffer. There's, It's so brave to ask for help and to say you're you're struggling as a new mom. Yeah, nothing to be ashamed of, which exactly. Renee also talks yes. about, you know, courage and shame and perfectionism. They're all in a little circle. Little circle. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's helpful just to open the dialogue and let people know. I think I think what you've shared today will really help a lot of our listeners. So I want to thank you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me.